Thanks everybody for coming. Um, welcome to Wildlife Cake and Cocktails, episode six. Um, I'm super amped about this one, obviously. Um, unfortunately, I'm not drinking, but I've got another non-drinker here. I'm not drinking because of doctor's orders. We've got one because they're a consummate professional. <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah, I thought that'd get a laugh. Um, uh, it's all right though, we, we went hard on the cake. I got a lemon lime cheesecake with um, red uh, Australian red lime pearls on the top, which is like a native lime. Uh, we do have some cocktails on the table. We have uh, Snake in the Grass, which is basically creme de menthe, uh, vodka, lime juice, and lemonade. Um, I'm drinking uh, an iced latte. <laughs> it's just so different to what we Yeah, yeah. It's usually a bit looser than this, but... Anyway, let's get to it. Hamish, how are you, man? Hamish Noll is back, everyone, um, from uh, That Reptile Guy, UQ Wildlife Science. What's been happening? Uh, yeah, working hard, studying, final year of the degree. Looking forward to graduating. Final year and then Ecuador? Uh, yeah, Ecuador will be in there. Nice. Uh, starting a bit further north in Costa Rica and Ooh. working my way down. And you're going to go see some Galapagos-ish type of stuff? I hope so, yeah. Nice. <laughs> That's the plan. Nice, very nice. And uh, Hamish has brought along Aaliyah Karam, UQ environmental science graduate. Uh, she's tutoring there as well. Uh, Aaliyah, you're a bit of a reptile nerd yourself? Uh, yeah, I'd say a bit, of a bit of a reptile nerd. I pretty much got into environmental science because I wanted to... I guess do something to do with animals and wildlife and reptiles, and that was the closest thing I could get around Brisbane. And and, and you did uh, demo work with Hamish. Or, yeah, or you, ta- you taught Hamish some. Technically, I some, taught Hamish yeah, some of what he knows. Yeah. yeah. All right. So he's gained some of his skills from there. Yeah. And uh, look, um, our main guest uh, Scott Eper is here today from Nature for You. Uh, Nature for You do uh, wildlife education, uh, photography. He's a general educational snake consultant. Um, Doing snake removal as well. What else do you do? Pretty much everything. Breeding. Yeah, hassle people mainly. Hassle <laughs> people mostly. Yeah. Um, nice. No, I do a bit of everything. So whether it be consultancy or safety. Yeah. So I do a fair bit of safety OHS for companies and for mines and stuff like that. Uh, a bit of training as well. So teaching people how to not get bitten by snakes, hopefully. So you, you teach? Do you teach uh, snake catchers? Or? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. But I try to do it only for industry. I tend to find that the private sector has got a lot of ego in it. So yeah. If well, I can avoid a bit of that, it's, it tends to be better. Um, yeah, we, we were having the ego conversation earlier. I think we're going to get yeah, into I, that. I suppose lot. the other thing when it comes to training as well is that it's really easy to train somebody who doesn't like anyone's snakes. Whereas uh, if you... Somebody who wants to get their hands on. Well, the problem is, is that they already think they know everything. Uh, I was about to say, it's so, because they know everything already. Yeah, and yeah. <laughs> believe it or not, women are the best students. Because that doesn't listen. surprise me. Yeah. yeah. Right? We're not macho <laughs> fucking idiots. Well, we all... Okay? Yeah. Well, so, I, I like my ideas. You know? I, yeah, I, I cherish mine. <laughs> Just ask me how good my ideas yeah, are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I suppose... I mean, there's people out there that like teaching sort of people everything about keeping uh, keeping and working with these things. At the same time, though, I mean, that's there's a whole different genre when you're working for a mining company or you're working for a, a, a industry where you've got to be professional. Yeah, so H&S so. becomes... Um, it's, not, it's a bit different when it's your personal safety than it is occupational health and safety. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Wonderful, man. So, look, um, we always like to start kind of with um, how people go into their various fields. Like, from what I understand, you uh, grew up in Melbourne a little bit, kind of like myself. Um, bringing home, you know, uh, so look, I, I grew up down there, down in the Dandenong Ranges, and I was bringing home, you know, blue tongue lizards and white lip snakes when I was about six years old. Now, from my parents were pissed at me for that, 
Um, I understand you were bringing home tigers and yeah, copperheads. Just a slight uh, step above. Yeah. Oh, look, they're only dangerous if you get bitten. So, <laughs> you know, and the, and the problem is they only have only got one dangerous end, too. So as long as you stay away from the dangerous end, yeah. it's okay. They just sound so safe. I, I mm. Yeah, well, they're, they're only tiny little fangs. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so if you can avoid the fangy part. Yeah, just yeah. leave the sharp bits alone. What, were, what, were your, what was your, like, folks' opinion on that? Okay, so... <laughs> Because I, I, I know what happened to me. Okay, so it was basically a battle of wills. <laughs> so, five years old, I'm bringing home tiger snakes and copperheads and prey and stuff like that. And, you know, it's not what I would recommend five-year-olds do these <laughs> days, you know, but hey... When you're five years old, you don't always listen anyway, so hey. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, it was completely illegal what I was doing as well, and we wouldn't recommend it, but, um, you know. Yeah, but, you know, you know, it is what it is. Um, I suppose, so basically what happened was is that I would go out every weekend and I would run around the bush and chase animals, bring them home, keep them. My father would come in on Sunday afternoon, he would see what I've got in my box, and go, you can't have that. <laughs> Take it back out to where I found it, release it, and I'd get a sore backside and wouldn't be able to sit down for a couple of days. Okay. Next weekend would come around, I'd go out and catch another one, bring it home. And so basically this kept going until I was about 10 years old, where Dad's just gone, right, fuck this. I've had enough of this. I'm going to take you to the VHS and you're actually going to learn. So the VHS, the Victorian Herpological Society. Wonderful, wonderful organisation. Second longest running herp society in Australia. Um, and at the time was run by some absolutely amazing people. And so here I am, a 10-year-old kid, listening to people talk about um, keeping and working with all these animals that I'm absolutely fucking obsessed about. And I'm like, well, maybe I can do this a bit more permanently or, or whatever. Um, so anyway, so I grew up doing that. So I'm running around VHS meetings and there's... I saw Rick Shine speaking when I was 13 years old. Oh, I'm going up to Rick Shine going, can you sign my <laughs> Feeling like an absolute wanker and nervous as hell. But sitting there right in the front row of these lecture halls with all these other herpers around, I'm like, oh. So I suppose with Facebook and social media and all that sort of stuff, I really miss the, the lack of these sort of meetings and stuff like mm. that because there was a whole social aspect to, to going to these things as well where people would be talking... And you know, there'd be dealings going on in the car park and, and all those sorts of things. <laughs> Never really happened. Yeah, but, right, um, of but yeah, so that was cool. Fantastic, man. Look, um, I think we can all say that we would have loved to have been there in that time <laughs> to be 13 and to be at those AHS meetings. Um, VHS meetings, sorry. A very interesting community to be part of. Yeah, yeah, very that, different yeah. community. Yeah, at that time, that would have been unreal. At the same time, though, <coughs> such a supportive community. Mm. Yeah. You know, like... I don't I mean, know one what of that my is. Biggest, <laughs> one of my biggest mentors was Brian Barnett. And people go, who is Brian Barnett now? And it's like, he's got 60 years on, on the mm. board breeding reptiles. And there was an interesting thing, I saw it in Stalkbook, of all things the other day, of somebody talking about hatching an egg outside of the shell. Right, it was chicken egg. Yeah, you know, yeah doing it right. So you've mm. yeah, yeah. seen the video, and they like, there's this thing, tagline at the bottom saying, first time anyone's ever hatched an embryo outside of a, an egg." Well, fucking Barnett did it with a spotted python back in 1983. Yeah, <laughs> right. Just because papers are hard to find doesn't mean yeah, they don't it doesn't exist. Really say they don't exist exactly. <laughs> so, I suppose you had somebody like that, and he's he goes right. He's this 13 year old kid. He's absolutely fucking a lapid crazy, <laughs> right. And he's like trying to calm down my parents. My parents bring him up to me to meet me, and we're talking da 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 da. And 
Brian's like, yeah, 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 no, that's all right. You can keep it in the snakes. You just do it the right way. And my parents are like, oh, fuck. Stay away from the book. No, no. So by 14 years old, I had a collection of about 60 venomous snakes. And then 16 years old, I'm keeping taipans and, and all sorts of crazy shit. Wow. So um, you, you coastals and inlands yeah, as well? coastals and inlands at 16. Wow. wow. So not, not, no. not a good idea. I, I mean, I've never been fanged by a typhoon. <laughs> um, Let's but, keep it that way. Yeah, so, I mean, I suppose with me, I went through a, a, a fairly significant change in 2005, which we'll, we'll get to later yeah. in regards to safe handling methods yeah. and, and stuff like that. Well, yeah, we, we all do some dumb stuff when we're a bit younger, but we will get into that as well. But um, look, actually, for, for now, I, I actually want to ask, what's your favourite animal? Obviously, like, you keep so much stuff. Do you have one? I mean, I, I'm guessing it rotates. No, no, no. Tight pants. No, no, no. <laughs> Big intelligent tight no, no, pants. Red bellies. Really? Okay. They are. They are one of the coolest. Honestly, their personality and kind of chill nature is. Yeah, and I've just watched. Yeah. They're red and they're black. And yeah, yeah. They're, <laughs> they're stunning. Really, when you get a really nice crimson one, it's like. They're pretty laid back. Yeah. Um, My buddy's got one with that um, where that white blonde snout is all the way across the top of the head. And yeah. A little blonde across the uh, parietal scales. Well, I've got some at the moment that are, look like almost like the North American indigo, indigo snakes. Yeah. yeah. They've got the super labials are all red. Yeah. yeah. So, wow. so they're pretty cool. Um, <laughs> That's incredible. And then, yeah, I mean, type ends. Coastal type ends. I mean, inland type ends are dumb as dog shit. But, um, <laughs> and I haven't played with temporalis yet. So, I mean... It's on the books? Well, hopefully. Hopefully <laughs> I'll, get, I'll get to them at some point in time. But um, coastals are a thinking snake. Yeah, okay. that's what I've heard. Um, yeah. And they really separate the, the, the men from the boys to be completely sexist. Um, <laughs> the reality of it is with them, though, is that a lot of people go, oh, yeah, they're really easy to handle. And, yeah, you get a good type in on a good day, 99.9% of the time, it will be as cruisy as fuck. But that Taipan can go from fucking zero to 100 <laughs> in a quarter of a second. Yeah, right. It's the scariest fucking thing in the world. Um, and they get big too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, people over, over three metres, basically, yeah? Um, yeah. Well, Papi ones are meant to get to 3.35 metres is the yeah. large one that were recorded. But yeah. um, in Australia, the largest one ever recorded was like 3.08, I think it was. That's a massive and venomous snake. Like, to give you an idea, there's a photo of that snake in my Alapa book. And there's a Pepsi can right here, next by the way. Um, yeah, good sure. Um, <laughs> there's a photo so of that snake next to a Pepsi can, and so like you look at the roundness of it, and it's like that. So it's rounder than my forearm. Wow, that's a big fucking snake. And so when that's coming at you with a mouth open, mm. that's a scary, scary thought. Yeah, that's a little bit. I only ever saw that snake dead, so I never saw it alive. So, um, but I've dealt with some big toys, and some big type ants can cover ground really really quickly yeah and you know they're striking at your hips as opposed to your knees or something like that jesus well look very cool anyway i i do i've, I've only ever seen ties in, in captivity and i i think i've seen one um in some sugar cane in malula bar while yep. i was fishing yep. it didn't look like a didn't look like an eastern yep um but you know can't be sure um now look since we're on the topic um i suppose we've got to talk about envenomation <laughs> Not to like bring up, bring you up on a spot. We can talk about envenomation. I don't mind. Don't get envenomated. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, look for anybody who's thinking about getting into venomous snakes. I mean, it's a, it's a reality, you know, that they kind of have to think about before. Are, are, are they keen to get into keeping uh, potentially deadly elephants? 
Um, I suppose there's two things that you need to consider. It's not your own safety. It's the safety of anyone that else is around you as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you've got to ask the question, am I willing to put my family at risk? Yeah. My housemates at risk? Yeah. You're bringing a venomous snake into their house as well. So that's the first thing you need to probably consider. Yeah. Second thing you need to consider is, well, why? Why do you want to do it? You know? And for me... Yeah, there's plenty of people that get into it for, for machoism and they will stick their fucking chest out and go, oh, I've got a venomous snake. Any people that keep venomous snakes for a long time realise that that is the stupidest reason in the world to keep venomous snakes. If you want to keep venomous snakes, keep them because you like them, because you find them interesting, you know, whatever the case may be. As opposed to dealing with um, sticking your chest out and going, oh, I've got a type man, so I'm fucking better than you. you know? Being being edgy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, you can usually pick it. I mean, what tends to happen, and, you know, I've been around a little while now, and I suppose what I tend to notice is that people go in and they'll get their black snakes first, and after they get their black snakes, then they'll get, like, an adder or a tiger or something like that, and then a couple of years later they'll get something else, then they won't get their type in. By the time they get their type in, it's usually two, three years in, and they think they fucking know everything. So they start giving advice to everybody about how to do this and how to do that. And... You know, I, I mean, I suppose to a point, I was one of those fuckwits too. You've got to pass so that bridge. I've got that. So <laughs> I suppose the easiest way to describe it is that, you know, you keep reptiles for five, five to ten years, you think you know something about it, and you really think you know about snakes. You walk into a room and go, I know about these things. And then 15 years go by, and you go, oh, maybe I don't know quite as much as what I thought I knew. And, you know, I've been keeping reptiles now. 37. I started keeping them when I was five, so a little while, 30 years. Um, and I realised I know fuck all. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. So it and takes suppose, you a while to rediscover your own ignorance yeah. there. Yeah, well, yeah, pretty much. But I suppose <laughs> the other thing that comes back to it, though, is that you also learn to not be so dismissive of other people as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. sure, absolutely. You can have somebody that's just come into it that picked up on something that you've never seen. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, fresh eyes right. are an amazing thing. So, yeah. Um, my advice to people is not not be a bit nicer to each other. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Know? Don't be. So, people can so get really sad. competitive about it. Yeah, the herd yeah. community can get a bit uh, competitive and butt heads yeah. a lot, and uh, you know disagree with There's each other to the point crowd that they yeah. That attracts, yeah. Unfortunately, but at the same time, yeah. you know, it's up to each individual to make that part of the community better, right? Mm. Yeah, I think so. I think. I mean, we we can all be better people. Yeah, if we want to. Be. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I I right. could I could try harder. Oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah. But trying requires effort. Yeah, sure. effort requires energy, and yeah. energy needs to be you know it's a finite resource. Sure. Um, I think the fact that it's online a lot these days doesn't you can help. Hide. Because yeah. a lot of people are hiding behind a keyboard. Oh, people on these are forums, being a keyboard warrior. And that does not help at all. Reptile keyboard warrior, that's a, mm, a new one. Yeah, well, wow. I imagine if there was a, an argument at one of those <clears throat> shows that you used to go to as a kid, yeah. it's not like. It'd You're be saying, more of a discussion, yeah. maybe a bit heated, but it's not going to go that out, out no, of the way. I've seen like no. full blown fist fights. <laughs> <laughs> I was wrong. There we go. It's I've always been the same. But, but there's the, maybe again, not as often. there's the difference. Yeah. You can just punch people, but you can't and do that done. with the internet. You know, yeah. like, <laughs> you just argue for hours at and the, hours. Turn on. your caps lock on. Yeah, yeah. that's maybe it. At the same time, though, right? and even though that was a bad example, I will I will go across it and sort of agree with you as well yeah at the same time you had a lot of people there that would sit there and just keep their fucking mouth shut and they'd be listening to two people have an argument about husbandry or anything like that and it'll be fairly respectful 
And see, I read a book about uh, body language and, and stuff like that, completely off topic. But 90% of human communication is not through text. Mm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so it's in the way that you speak, it's in the way that you hold your body, it's in the way that you uh, change the pitch and tone of your voice. So you're typing. <laughs> how the fuck does anyone know what you're actually trying to say? Yeah. you yeah. got you got to try to imagine how angrily they're hitting the keyboard on the other side. And, and when, oh, when they're... See, this is the problem. This is where it becomes a big clusterfuck, is that... Somebody imagines that you were being angry, exactly. and the other person yeah. goes, and when that person was actually trying to help. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. And so you read into it what was not meant to be there. Exactly. And when there's yeah. ten to fifteen people all trying all to get in at once, yeah. and people are trying to get their opinion in as quick as possible, otherwise they're you know halfway down the line and the conversation's changed. Mm. There's not there's not a lot of time. I've definitely been misunderstood a, quite a few times. Yeah, yeah there's not well, a lot of time for a, a casual and informed discussion. Yeah. It's just everybody get in as quick as they can. And everyone and wants to have their own say. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And be first. Yeah, I think there's also one other thing as well. Is that, and I'm, people say, oh, it's a good time to grow up when I did and stuff like that. I look back at like people like Richard Wells and um, Glenn Shea and Alex Dudley and, and those guys when they grew up. You know, they're, they're sort of like the generation before me. And you listen to the way that what they got to do. They didn't yeah. have to worry about parks and wildlife. Parks. Oh, no. They could just go out and <laughs> fucking do whatever they wanted. What want, yeah. you know? And they could oh, go right. out and collect stuff, and they could go out and do this, and they could go out and do that. Wildlife departments are made that we can't do that. So yeah. there's, there's that whole other issue. At the same time, though, now, you look at what kids are doing, and you know, there's, um, there's some young ones that have sort of grown up either on the forums and then, and then sort of come across on the Facebook. 15-year-old kids, 18-year-old kids, you know, whatever. And you see them actually grow up. <laughs> At the same time, though, you see those same kids and they're arguing with people like Steve Wilson and they're arguing <laughs> with Glenn Shea and they're arguing with, um, you know, Brian Bush and stuff like that. And they're arguing with these really, really smart, intelligent guys that are really nice and, and friendly people as well. Yeah. And they argue about this and they argue about that. And then the other side of it as well is that these people are available to talk to these kids yeah. and give that them something. That is just you know? the burning resources you know, left, so, right, and centre. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I met Steve Wilson back in, fuck, 94, I think it was. 94 or 95, I met Steve for the first time. And that was after a VHS meeting because he came down and did a slideshow and yeah. stuff like that. The slides and <laughs> digital fucking cameras. Um, and it used to cost a lot of money to take photos. Um, but so... You go up and you talk to Steve, get him to sign your book or something like that at the end of a uh, end of a talk, and you know, be enthralled in what he's saying. Now people can go, "Hey, Steve, what's this lizard I found in my backyard?" And Steve's like, "Oh, well, this is what it is." Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so you've got this opportunity where people are able to straight away sort of interconnect. Yeah. At the same time, though, then you also get this people where they're growing up on Facebook and they're puffing their fucking chest out and they're doing what they got to do. And so they look like fools in front of those same people as well. So, you know, oh, yeah, let's put a brown snake around my neck or yep. let's, let's do whatever we're going to do. So I'm really thankful that I didn't grow up as a teenager <laughs> through Facebook at the same way time. Harder you to may have had a, yourself. Yeah. Well, may have been a few more. Way harder to look stupid. Well, look, I 
I was talented about looking stupid, has that? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, look, let's bring it back to Envenomation, if you don't mind. Sorry. I told you I'd do this. I know it's going to happen anyway. You know, like, we usually hear drinking. I mean, we yeah. get sidetracked badly. Um, but look, just for uh, our audience out there, do you want to describe um, a little bit what a venomous snake bite was like for you? I know there was a couple that we spoke about. There was oh. the um, spotted black and the marsh snake. Okay. Um, so, I'll talk... My first bite was actually from a shield snake, a brown snake. Uh, a spitterinka? A spitterinka. Right. So, I was moving it from one case to another and it banged me on the little finger. And I looked down and I remember looking down and going, that's not good. Yeah, that, that, that'd be good. And that's like, and that's like <laughs> the first thing that goes through your mind. Oh, fuck, that's not good. <laughs> anyway, so I put it back in this box. I've gone and put the bandage on. Gone and my mum's seen me and she's just started crying. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> that's the wor- that's worse that's than the bite, hard. isn't it? <laughs> that's <laughs> way worse than the bite. <laughs> so that was that. So anyway, so that was back in 94. <sighs> anyway, 96 comes around. And... I was breeding, I was breeding venomous snakes at that point in time. I had this clutch of spotted black snakes. And, oh, I suppose one that was about yay long, so two and a half feet. Yearling, basically. Yeah, yearling. It smashed me on the little finger. We used to use light bulb boxes as hides. You know, so, mm-hmm. um, had them in like plastic containers and then you use the light bulb box to hide and you throw it away when it gets a manky. So anyway, the back of the light bulb box, there's like a little bit of a fold. So I've, the snake's curled up inside the high box. So I'm like, oh, yeah, sorry, I'll just grab that out like that. Put it into the, the bin that I'll, and then clean out the cage. So anyway, the little, my little finger, the end of that looks like a pink mouse. Mm. Yep. A pink rat. <laughs> so anyway, this spot of black just smashed me on the end of the fucking little finger. And I remember looking at it going, fuck, and flipped it. And I watched the snake fly from one side of the room oh. to the other. I'm like, oh, that fucking hurt. Anyway, I walked over, picked the snake up, fucking threw it back in the cage. Fucking prick. <laughs> what? Ah, oh, what a black. Who gives a fuck? No, that's only a little one. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be right. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, no bandage on or anything like that. I've gone inside. I told me old man. I said, oh, I've been smashed by a spot of black. And he goes, how bad are they? And I go, oh, nah, they're right. <laughs> <laughs> and what did he say? He goes, oh, I'll keep an eye on you. Anyway, about three minutes later, I'm like, no, nah, fuck, we better go to the hospital. So, fucking bandage on. Anyway, old man's like flying down Daniel Road in Melbourne, fucking 120k's an hour, up through the tram lines, the whole fucking lot. Anyway, pulls into the Alfred Hospital. Anyway, so we go in, and then we had this whole argument about what I'd be bitten by in the hospital. And anyway, it came down to the doctors. The doctors said, look, you don't get spotted black snakes in Victoria. And my comment to that was, well, you might fucking shed, you do. Okay? <laughs> and so... You get everything in much. Yeah, you know, so <laughs> then there was, they got onto a, a serum guy, a, a venom researcher guy, and spoken to him. And when they spoke to him, he goes, no, nah, no, nah, okay. If he's saying he's been bitten by that and he's so adamant about it, then maybe you should listen to him. You know, he's got a license, da, 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 da. Right. So, long story short, two ampules of anti-venom later. And I had to get a, a SVDK test. And they're like, well, we haven't had a split, confirmed case from a spotted black snake bite before. We're going to see how it's going to react. I'm like, oh, yeah, right, no worries. So the fuckers gave me a catheter. <laughs> what a treat. Your dad wasn't bad you, enough. You reckon that being smashed by a venomous snake is bad? Get a catheter with no fucking anaesthetic. It sucks. And okay. no, no anaesthetic? No anaesthetic. 
Well, you don't want to suppress the nervous system. Uh, yeah. Yeah, because it fucking sucks. It's sensitive. Oh, so, okay. So there's another thing to think about. So, if you do get a neurotoxic bite, no, no, well, no pain. Well, I don't know. Maybe it was just the case. I think... Maybe that was what, what it was know, back in the day. I don't know. I mean, I know other people that have had pethidine and stuff like that. Yeah, after, okay. After, after a bad mistake. Stuff like that. So... Maybe it was just me. I don't know. Maybe they were teaching me a fucking lesson. <laughs> so anyway, I've got permanent damage in my left hand. Really? Yeah. I lost my sense of smell and taste for two years. Wow. How's the cake? Fucking fantastic. Hey, we're back. Came back. Yeah. Um, but I have permanent damage now, nerve damage from my little finger up to here, that part of my arm. Wow. Um, and, you know, I burnt it pretty badly because I didn't feel it burning. Yeah, right. So it, it was a pretty bad bite. Um, few other bites in between here and there, basically because I was a hands-on keeper and I was also a teenager and thought I was indestructible. You know, oh, I get a bite, go to the hospital, get antivenom, you'll be right, keep moving. That all changed in 2005. Um, I got a bite from a swamp snake, medically insignificant. Hemiaspis signata, just a little uh, blue-bellied marsh snake. Yeah, so snakes, yeah. the one that smashed me was three feet long, so it was a good Okay, size. so it was a decent size. Wow. Anyway. <laughs> I've never seen a mustache. It, it was big. It was bigger than it was thicker than my thumb. Anyway, so I'm curled it up like this for photos. So I'm holding it underneath my hand like this for a photo. First guy takes photos. Second guy takes photos. The snake's just fucking calm as fuck. Anyway, next thing you know, fucking bangs me on the little thing in there, and just like, and I literally looked, lifted my hand up like this, and it's just like attached. You fucking prick. Dangling off your finger. Like, why are you doing this? <laughs> anyway, pull him off. You can't even kill me. Right? <laughs> Curling back up again with my hand. <laughs> right? Get my photos. And as I'm, like, trying to focus the camera, I'm feeling my hand swelling up. And I'm actually struggling to focus the camera because my hand's swelling up that much. But I'm thinking, oh, yeah, you know, it's going to... Yeah. You read all the books. What do they say? Oh, yeah, it's like a bad wasp thing. Yeah. You know? yeah. Okay, so you expect a bit of pain. Some, somebody, uh, there was a herpetologist who wrote down the account. Um, mm. I read the paper. Um, Hemiaspis signata gets bite, uh, and uh, there's a paper of him. It's an old paper of him just sitting down, just describing symptoms, being like headache, a little bit of blood in the urine. That's about it. Yeah, yeah. That would have been awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so about 25 minutes later, my fucking eyes are starting to run. You know, I'm like fucking. You know, I'm feeling a bit sick and sorry. My fingers all swollen, a bit sore, and then. Itchy nose running, itchy sort of ears burning. Mm. Fuck, okay. Anyway, I look down the inside of my arms. I mean, the inside of my arms are just fucking hyped up. Right? Like completely hyped up. Oh, oh, my chest is hot. So I've pulled my fucking look at my shirt. My whole chest hives and rashy and everything. Right. Yeah. Anyway, so I look in the fucking in the rear vision mirror. We're like three hundred k from fucking anywhere. Look in the rear vision mirror of the fucking cruiser, and look. My face is like bright fucking red, and my lips are gone blue. And I'm like, ooh, <laughs> this might be a bit of an issue. Yeah. Uh-huh. So my mate's with me. He goes, oh, how are you feeling? I go, oh, not so fucking hot. <laughs> <laughs> he goes, do we need to go to the hospital? I go, nah, we'll be right. We'll be okay. We'll just sit in. And I'm like sitting there quietly concentrating on my breathing. And I'm like... And on those like, oh, airways shit. are starting okay, to close. Okay, my airways oh. are starting to close. I'm like, hey, dude, we better fucking go. <laughs> so that's not um standard reaction to uh, marsh snake. Well, yeah. So basically, anaphylaxis. 
Phylactic reaction. I, I had an anaphylactic reaction yeah. to... And it was my first anaphylactic reaction. Um, and so basically what happened was it was like some fucker was sitting on my chest oh. and I couldn't... I was really struggling to actually intake oxygen. Yeah. Right. And basically what that was is that my airways were shutting and because my airways were shutting, it was really hard and being constricted to actually breathe. Long story short, it took... I was like that for about half an hour from the start from the onset till where it started to sort of give way and so the symptoms effectively reversed and so my head started to clear my eyes cleared up you know handles are swollen as fuck but you know and that's fine and then sort of 12 hours later I'm out chasing snakes again wow and straight back into it well, I couldn't. I had to catch a brown snake backhanded because I couldn't close my hand the, the right way because my hand was like swollen. Can't miss them. Can't miss them. Oh my god. Um, so yeah. So anyway, so I get back and then I can't remember who I spoke to. I spoke to somebody, a toxicologist anyway, and I told him what happened. And he's like, "Yeah, you went through anaphylactic. You're pretty lucky to be here." And I'm like, "Oh, okay." He goes, "What was it?" And I said, "Swamp snake." And he goes, "Oh, you've yeah, been bitten by them before." And this was the interesting part. No. That was the very first swamp snake I had ever seen. And it got you. Yeah. And it bit me. Yeah. All because I was being Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Normally you just wouldn't take him seriously. Like, yeah, who, exactly. who does? Exactly. I've so, done the exact same thing as you countless times. Yeah. You just so, wouldn't think that that was going to happen. Exactly. So you think it's not going to fucking happen. Anyway, so this is why it was, in some ways, I'm really happy it did. Right. Learn a lesson. So... Mm. Yeah, well, you only learn a lesson if you act upon that lesson, don't you? So, yeah, right. anyway, so basically, what ended up happening was, as I looked at it and gone, well, okay, I've never seen a swamp snake before. I've never been exposed to any of their toxins before. I'm obviously allergic to some yeah. enzyme or some protein that's common to quite a few snakes, but I don't know what that is. So, I need to be careful. Doesn't matter what it is. So I suppose what that's led to me now is what I explain to every person that I come into come into contact with when, when it comes to working venomous snakes. Don't disregard the fact that it might be highly toxic, anything like that. If you can't get oxygen into your lungs and that those that oxygen from your lungs can't oxygenate the blood to your heart, it doesn't matter. You're gonna fucking die anyway. Yeah. So it doesn't matter what a book says. All right. My book says, yeah, mildly venomous on this and mildly venomous on that, da-da-da-da. If you happen to be the one that actually reacts to that particular toxin, you're fucked either way. Yeah, Yeah, very true. I suppose for me where it was good is that because it was a a species of snake that is regarded generally as as mildly venomous, um, it made me sit up and think that these symptoms are actually due to Mm. anaphylactic reaction due to an allergic reaction as opposed to symptoms of any venomation, which is so varied depending on what you get bit by. Um, and so there's two ways I could have dealt with that afterwards. All right. The first way is to go, oh, I'm not going to tell anyone about my embarrassing story. Yeah. And then the next person comes along and then they get bitten by something and they go through the same sort of shit that I do. Yeah. Or, alternatively, I can look like a fuckwit to a few people and, and tell people about it. <laughs> <laughs> And so people are going to learn from it. Yeah, so the deal was, was that, oh, fuck it. You know what? I'll tell people about it. And I put the photo up of me looking absolutely fucking rat shit, <laughs> all right, in my talks when I'm doing a talk to a herb society. And the comments that I get are, oh, and they go, fuck you, a lot skinnier then. 
suppose that we're going with that though is what what happens is at least people are learning from yeah yeah exactly and we we thank people like you for it all the time I mean how else would um, people know well I suppose the way I look at it is if if I've helped one person through that I don't know if Mm. I've helped them or not if one person hasn't had to go through what I went through happy days I'll cop a bit more shit for it yeah is it normal (laughs) for the like reaction to reverse though like when you have allergic reaction to something I don't know. I feel like a lot of people don't get to see that reverse. Yeah. Like, I don't know. They get to a point and... So, yeah, it could yeah. even be... You might have saved someone from, like, not having the reverse at all. Like, if they get bitten. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. So, uh, uh, just yeah, it just sucks. So, you have to take more precautions now, basically. Yeah, so I've got an EpiPen. I carry an EpiPen with me, and I've got an EpiPen in the snake building as well. So, yeah, right. you know. And, basically, I changed my whole handling styles as well. So yeah, right. You know, I went from somebody who was really, really hands-on, yeah. free-handled a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, and there's types of free-handling too, all right? So when I say free-handling, I'm not talking about putting sure in your neck and yeah. all that sort of stuff. It's where you manipulate the animal with care without using... Without a tool, you know? man, other than um, And, you know, I still do that sort of stuff on occasion to a point. Um, but generally speaking, it's a lot easier just to use walks and stuff like that as yeah. well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, I've got friends um, who come from either end of the spectrum. Some people will freehandle, and I've got other mates who will never touch a, a, a hot them. You know, yep. they'll, they'll double hook their, their mangdenies. They won't tail them, you know, unless they really need to get that head into a tube. Mm-hmm. It's gone tube tube, uh, sorry, hook hook, and it's going in the bin, you close the bin, and done. So it's one way to do it, and look, uh, everybody. We, we are going to get into handling a little bit later, but look, there's a lot of different opinions on that, yeah. and um, there's nothing wrong with that. You yeah, can't no, be absolutely. too careful either. So absolutely, no, no. Um, and look, whatever works for you works for you. Um, honestly, getting your hands on the animal is sometimes the only option when it's fleeing or it's in a weird situation or a corner or whatever, mm. or you need to... Especially for snake catchers. Yeah, mm. well, if you yeah. need to pin it's it... It's not always and, in a you know, glass enclosure. Yeah. Yeah. If it's caught in some bird netting or something, you need to yeah. restrict its movement as soon as possible before it treads itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that kind of fun stuff. So yeah, I could argue with you on that. Yeah, really? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I know, well, I'll fuck it all. Yeah, that's well, well, what's, uh, <laughs> what's, your, what's your opinion on getting uh, snakes okay. out of bird netting? No, 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 no. <laughs> we'll get to that in a minute. Okay. You said that you have, there are times you need to put your hands on a snake. I think so, yeah. Bullshit. Okay. What's the safest... What's the mo- three most important things when dealing with a snake? Safety. Who's safety? Uh, yours. Yours and the snake. Your safety. Yeah. yeah. All right, so that's number one. Yeah. Number two? People around you. Safety of everyone around you. Yeah. Number three Snakes. is the welfare of the snake yeah. itself, right? Where does it say that you have to have a fucking time clock on how you catch that snake? True. Yeah, there's no rush, is So there? you just said to me, yeah, well, I've got, oh, yeah, it's fleeing, I've got to catch, put my hands on it and catch yeah. it. Okay, yeah. let it go. Yeah. Let it go through. Let it get to an area where it's safer for you to capture it. Yeah, sure. Okay. Now, the reason I say that is because when I'm training, training people in the mind, I don't want some novice fucking walking up to and grabbing a fucking mulga snake or a brown snake or a tail. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, because if you're reaching down to grab that snake by the tail, it's going to your head is coming into close contact with yeah. that animal. Yeah. Okay. So you get a six foot mulga snake, you're by the tail, it's on your forehead before you have a chance to fucking react. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So a little bit different for snake catchers that are doing it all the time and they, they sort of learn the, the distances and what they can move yeah. and stuff like that. But there's no reason if somebody wants to avoid actually handling a snake with their hands, there's no reason why you can't avoid it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
so sorry. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, all right. Well, what about something difficult like a, a, a like a rescue? If um, okay. you know, you've got a, a, an animal caught in webbing and you do need to pin it. Um, so I, you, I, I, I understand that you could you could pin it using jiggers and things like this, mm-hmm. um, but um, the amount of control um, with a with a couple of jiggers compared to getting getting a tube and getting your hands on the animal is a little bit different. So why not jigger it and then put it onto a tube? Well, I mean, you still got to get you still got to get your hands onto it after it's in the tube, right? But once it's in the tube, so yeah, yeah, absolutely. But um, I mean, it's a, still a, a, it's a way of getting your hands on the animal is to tube it. Yeah, right? yeah, but. I suppose the difference between those is if rushing in and once that animal's actually in, in secure a cube, and safe. The snake's secure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So you want another solution where you could do that? Yeah. So get it into a container. Yeah. Anesthetize it. Uh yeah, of course. So people are using anesthetized systems in the states. Yeah, right. So there's there's zoos in the states that, for their mambas and stuff like that. What they do mm. with these trap boxes. I wonder about um, wildlife boxes. rescuers here in well, Australia. Oh, I don't see why they can't do it. Mm-hmm. But they have a trap box that's got a medical grommet on Yeah. Okay. So what they can do is they can actually separate that cage off the exhibit. Right. Rolls it over. They can use uh, anesthetic gas, plug it into a port on the hide box, anesthetise whatever's inside it. Happy days. Yeah, and then you can work on it safely. And then you can work on an animal safely. Yeah. So there's more than one way to skin a cat. Absolutely. And a lot of things to consider there, definitely. Um, all right, look, before we get into some of the really geeky stuff, um, look, if anybody out there uh, listening uh, or watching um, is keen, I recommend jumping on Facebook or Instagram. Where else are you guys? WildlifeDemonstrations.com.au? Yep. No, not just, just dot com. Um, and checking out some of the awesome photos. Um, you can get some of these shirts there as well. i got my nice... Uh, Got my nice uh, Sam Gouldio right there, Sam Goanna. Um, and uh, so it's Nature Four, letter four U uh, Y O U on Facebook, and uh, uh, Nature F O U R U on Instagram. I think there's some really nice uh, Bell's Form glamour shots. Your Parenti spot is absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. It's it's one of my unicorn <coughs> animals. Three days after I left a, a site in um, uh, the, volunteering, they got a Parenti, and I Aww. still haven't found one in the wild. Uh, That's right. We've They're So look, you, you obviously spend like a lot of time in the field anyway. Um, yeah. you know, great way to learn about uh, about you know wildlife, and, you know, particularly if you're paying attention to the conditions. Um, for would-be herpers, you know, snake nerds, people keen to get into it and get out there. Do you have any? Do you have any recommendations? Any tips for people to get uh, who are keen to get out herping who haven't really done too much of it before? Leave the snake hook and the snake bags at home. Bring the camera, and that's Bring it. The camera. Yeah. Um, Oh, depends on where you are. I mean, I'd contact the local herb society is probably the first first thing to do. Yeah. Um, if you get in contact with the herb society, they'll be able to. In New South Wales, there's there's field trips and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, field naturalist clubs, fucking awesome. Yeah. That's, a, that's a really good resource. And we, we were speaking of some of the people in the UQ Herb Society here in, yeah. in, in Brisbane as well. For people at the University of Queensland or here in Brisbane interested, you can find them on Facebook as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm just about as far away from a university student as you can get. <laughs> I mean, and I'm at the UQ Herb Society a fair bit, yeah. you know, and, you know, they do, um, they had a thing up at Glorious not too long ago. Yeah, they have some really 12 purpose go out into the scrub and look at animals. So. No worries. Um, all right, guys, um, just really quickly, um, I think we're going to have to have a quick five-minute break before we get into uh, some, some other stuff. We'll be back in a few minutes. Uh, yeah, hang around. And we're back again. Um, I have no idea what we were talking about before break, <laughs> but that's okay. Um, look, um, I suppose we should talk about 
this phenomenal piece of work. Um, a Guide to Australian Snakes in Captivity, Elapids and Colubrids by our wonderful guest, Mr. Scott Epa. Um, so look, this came around when like a lot of this information was kind of out and scattered all over the place, yep. right? There wasn't really a place that had brought it all together into one thing for people keen to get into, you know, keeping, breeding, stuff like that, right? Yeah, yeah. So what happened was is um, Danny Brown up on the Sunshine Coast, he was talking with a publisher about doing a lizard book. And so the publisher turned around and goes, well, yeah, that's all well and good, but we want to do ones about snakes and frogs and turtles and everything. So Danny rings me up and goes, you know how you reckon you're going to write a snake book? And I go, yeah. And he goes, I've got a publisher. Are you interested? And I'm like, fuck yes, let's do it. <laughs> nice. So two weeks later, we've got a meeting with the publisher and deadlines and, and stuff like that and started working on, on this book. And so I set out, basically the first thing I did is when I roughed out the book, I roughed out the the, um, the headings of what I wanted. And then I was like, right, well, what do I actually want to see in a book? And what did I want when I was getting into it? And so I put my hat on when I was sort of 10, 15 years old about what I, the information I was looking for when I'm looking to keep a species and stuff like that. And then basically go through the literature like a fiend and try and chase up references to everything, as well as then using uh, my experience as a keeper as well. Um, so it's a bit of a conglomerate of both of those, both of those things. And then also using... Uh, other people that I knew over the years to to come and give me some assistance with certain things. Um, the most important thing, though, about that particular book and the Frog book that I did as well and the other books in the series is, is they all had peer reviewers. Okay? Um, I cannot um, sort of reiterate how important the peer review process was. Um, so there'll be some a lot of uh, you know pet-keeping books that you'll see at pet shops which don't have to go through a peer review process. This technically doesn't have to no, go through a peer review, but it has but it been should. through one. Like, yeah, um, yeah. Just so the you know anybody you know any potential audience for it can know that other people other than just the author have had their eyes on it to confirm yeah, that what is in there is. I suppose the other thing as well too. There was a couple of other things that I I was pretty adamant about, and I said this to the publisher right from the start. Is that if we're going to have a veterinary chapter, I want it authored by a veterinarian. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay? I'm not a fucking vet. Yeah. Okay. I'm not any way qualified that I should be speaking on veterinary subjects. Yeah. Okay, I've got an understanding, okay, but at the same time, I certainly shouldn't be authoring that. So, you know, and there's a whole legal liability side of things there yeah. as well. So <laughs> yeah. it's like, yeah, yeah, you know what, that. I'm yeah. going to go the right way here. So Rob Johnson from Sydney came on board with that and he authored that. And then same thing when it comes to, in my case, uh, venomous snake bite and venomations, um, I did write the chapter on that, and then that was peer-reviewed by Dr. Kim Winkle, who was the director of the Australian Venom Research Unit down in uh, CSL, uh, University of Melbourne down in Victoria there. Um, And so we went through afterwards, and he made sure that everything that I had written was not only was factual, but was also up to date. Um, The first aid stuff that's suggested in that is also what um, is based on the findings of Canal et al., uh, which was based on the the use of uh, elasticised compression bandages as opposed to using crepe bandages and stuff like yeah. that. Um, since that's come out, there's been a paper that has significantly changed snakebite first aid in that it's giving recommendations to pressure for legs versus arms yeah. versus chest, recommends an actual type of bandage now. 
So there's all these changes that have happened since that. So um, if there ends up being a revised edition, which there may or may not be happening, um, we'll Intent. obviously adopt yeah. those. No, 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 um, we got it on camera. No, <laughs> I've got a fuck-up list for that book as well. So, you know, I misspelled Bitaquatus in the in the book. Oh, really? You know, yeah, yeah, giant, through. giant, giant error. Yeah. No, no, no. It's like repeated <laughs> like six it. times in there, and like one person goes up to me, he goes, "Oh, did you know you misspelled that?" And I'm like, "Oh." I'm just gonna yeah, throw I, my think, I think blame, blame it on, on that uh, spell check, you know, correct all. Yeah, well, yeah. I figure it is like, well, hang on. Things there was other fucking peer reviewers that missed this one. <laughs> <well, laughs> yeah, so. exactly. Um, and, and look, really, honestly, it's um, for me, uh, the, one of the best things about it is how it's split into two. So kind of all your general keeping and, yep. and all of that at the start, and then you go into specifics for. Uh, basically each individual species or genus if they're you know kind of uh, yeah. housing requirements or keeping requirements are similar enough and those are um, both in um, uh, split as well into in wild and in captivity so yeah. there's wild observations as well um, absolutely phenomenal man um, it's look if anybody out there is keen to get into keeping Australian um, venomous snakes that is the book for you uh, where can people get this at the moment still um Online, online, track it down, guys. Track, track it down, down. online. Yeah. The one thing quickly with it that I really liked about it, there's a couple things I tried to get in there. One thing, there's a whole section on how to get snakes eating. Okay, yes. Yeah, right? There's yes. actually like a step by step guide, which is perfectly applicable to pythons and stuff like that as well. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing that's in, that I really liked in there. And then the other thing as well is that by having the, the wild stuff and the captive stuff, it actually gives some guidelines there. You know, and there's more than one way to skin a cat. So yeah. that's the other thing that needs to be remembered. This is the way that I've done it, and the way that's worked for me. Other people can do it different ways. Yeah. So it's not. It's, yeah. The, the the methods in there aren't the you know the only ones. way to do it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And but, especially for the smaller lappets, there is not a lot out there no. in the literature on how to do a lot of these things. And for me personally, I went around and talked to a lot of people, yeah. and like I said, I got told a different way every single time. If not being told to just not bother because it was too hard. Um, and that's probably my favourite part of the book was the fact that it actually gives you yep this is how you can do it well this is how I did it it doesn't (laughs) mean to say it's the right way but that's how I did it well it worked for me as well so there's two people that was a good start well we we don't have time to go through it all here today Um, I wish we did I wish we could talk about this book for a long time but I think we're going to have to get into our new research segment guys Um, alright let's do it um, so, starting locally um, with Welton et al. I was believe uh, Ronell Welton. Injury trends from envenoming in Australia, 2000 to 2013. This is in the Internal Medicine Journal. So, um, Australian venomous creatures and their bites are pretty well sensationalised. We can all agree to that, I think. Um, bit of a paucity of data on envenoming. I mean, there has been previous work done by Bradley and obviously the work by Strong Sutherland and all those guys, you know, rest in peace, of course. Um, wicked stuff done uh, previously. Um, but, uh, you know, I guess for when it comes to evidence-based decision-making on population-level uh, health issues, um, for planning, resource allocation and stuff, you need data. So um, directly from the, the introduction here... Uh, individuals within different population groups require different types of support from the health system with varying risks including age, gender, cultural background, geographical location and remoteness. Evidence is necessary to support decision making, planning, resource allocation, coordination, integration across health areas. 
So um, basically what they did, they took um, Australian Institute of Health and Welfare cause of death records cross-checked against the National Coronial Information System, as well as medical literature, media reports, and uh, looking for correlations and inconsistencies. You get a couple of sources correlated together, the, the cases included in the data set, excluding um, you know, non-residents, open investigations, and so on. The data is mapped using ArcGIS, uh, geographical information software, um, with the Australian Bureau of Statistics data overlay. Data was, of course, split up uh, by five-year age increments, gender, state-specific populations, remoteness, um, and results are pretty fun. Um, arthropods, uh, as far as admissions into hospital, arthropods cause about 76%. Snakes cause 15%, and marine creatures cause about 9%. Of, uh, of the deaths, we've got 33 from arthropod anaphylaxis, so that similar, you know, getting envenomated by something you've never been envenomated before, and I mean, you just yeah. happen to be super allergic to it yeah. and your uh, lungs shut down um, and we have uh, less we, 33 from arthropods um, 27 from snakes um, of those snake bite deaths 66% uh, this is directly from the paper 66% occurred within a major city or, re- or in a regional area Queensland had the highest number and rate the mean age was 47.8 years and 70% of cases involved males two thirds of cases that involved failed bites took place at the person's home uh, brown snakes were recorded as the cause of 63% of all snake bite deaths. That's the brown snake genus as a whole. So, bees, wasps, spiders, far more dangerous. And I'm, I'm just imagining these 40-year-old dads to young kids coming <laughs> in to save the day. Yes. And that's, that's the majority of people getting bitten. Again, that's sort of... Um, in a city, men, 40 yeah. years old, probably got young-ish kids... Thinking they can handle it. Yeah, and the exactly. ego comes into play. And uh, this is what I always say: there's no way that you're going to be able to protect your family anymore mm. if you're dead. Yeah, and it's <laughs> yes. unnecessary to. You're not protecting them from yep. anything anyway. And now we have data to back it up. Um, your opinion, Scott? I know. Um, um, I suppose the one thing that I would have really liked to have seen. Oh, I, know, I know this is about animation. Yeah, but it would have been a great way to be able to argue horses mm. and dogs. Yes, yep. I would like exactly. to actually see how many people died from animals over that period it's, in Australia. It's much like, I know about 5,000 uh, a year die in swimming accidents. Yeah, yeah. I, was, okay. I definitely read something recently and there was like a really high number of people that have died in horses like horse-related are, yeah, accidents. Horses are, are the biggest, the most dangerous snakes. animal in Australia, I believe. Yeah. yeah. Maybe mosquitoes. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. Well, so, yeah, there you go. Yeah. But horses, definitely. Oh, horses, yeah. Yeah, Without a doubt. See, I've always been really scared of getting stung by a bee and having that reaction. Yeah. Because I've never been stung by a bee. And now I'm so glad that I know that I've also not been bitten by a lot of snakes. (laughs) (laughs) It's always nice to not be... Well, uh, suddenly they're all on the same playing field. When you talk about anaphylaxis... It could be an inland tire, it could be yeah. a bee. See, I, yeah. I've never and got it, scared of like snakes as much. Like, obviously, I have that natural fear. Because I was like, oh, like, you get envenomated, blah, 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 you deal with it. And I was always really scared of bees. But well, now I have both. Well, yeah, I mean, the, more. It's great. Okay. The interesting thing with the uh, arthropods, if you look at it, again, mean age 46.2, mm. 91% male. Dad with the broom hitting yeah. down a wasp nest. Um, 60, 62% within a city or in a regional area. Again, so the idea that all these snake bites happen out in the bush or out in the country. Yeah. Not yeah. true. They're happening inside people's backyards and people yeah. who 
could either leave the snake alone or call a professional snake catcher. Yeah. Now there was yeah. um uh, there was some uh, something that I missed apparently the uh, yeah so like three days ago there was a paper that came out by Jeff Ivester as part of the Australian Snake Bite. So Jeff Ivester from um, uh, Australian Snake Bite Project down in New South Wales, University of Newcastle. Yeah, Newcastle. So yeah. that's come out. The ASP has been working sort of behind. Yeah. Uh, looking at snake bite and venomation and trying to sort of get rid of some of the, the myths and rumours and stuff like that. And right. I mean, widely sort of publicised the figures, the amount of times that people get bitten by snakes in Australia. And it's widely quoted by demonstrators and other people throughout Australia that, you know, there's around to 1,000 to about 1,500 snake bites in Australia. And of that, every, every year. Well, this data absolutely blows that out of the proportion. Right. Um, of the, all of the doctors that have registered their information with the Australian Snake Bite Project, over a 10-year period, there was only 1,548 snake bites. Over a 10-year period? Over a 10-year period. So that means... So that 2,000 to 3,000 a year is... Is bullshit. Right. <laughs> um, now, okay, you've got, to account okay for the, you've got to account for the data that may not have been submitted to the program. Yeah, of course. At the same time, though, I mean, the, the way it has been publicised, that ASP project, from my understanding, it's pretty well understood across the emergency departments of most hospitals. So they are getting a really good load Sample of data. Set, yeah. So if they're getting if they're hitting like sixty or seventy or even eighty yeah. percent. Yeah. Even if they're only getting fifty percent. Yeah, that's still that way means, under. That's way that's under three thousand snake bites over a ten year period. Yeah. So that means per year when we're saying fifteen hundred to it, two thousand it, it, it should be it's actually thirty thousand. It should be twenty thousand to thirty thousand. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So from that where it sort of goes with that and then as well, that you've got that there's of that 100 people that are being bitten or 150 people that are being bitten, you're looking at 80 to 100 that are receiving potentially receiving antivenom. Yeah. And there's two deaths per year. Yeah. So the figures are the same where they're saying that there's been 27 snake bite deaths. Yeah. yeah. All right. They're saying the same thing. Mm. So that there's no difference there in regards to those figures. It's just the amount of people that are actually being bitten. Yeah. Right. To begin with. Now, obviously, you've got to also take out of it that a lot of people that aren't going to hospital and stuff like that. So there are more bites. Mm than what have been recorded in that. Yeah. Like yourself when some... you were younger getting that. Yeah, well, you know, I used <laughs> to go to hospital. <laughs> yeah, that's why you still here. get bitten by like a pet or something that's not venomous that wouldn't Yeah, of course, of course. It. But that of would course. like hugely add to the number. Well, even if it did, it would be like an illegitimate bite, wouldn't it? Yeah. It's going to completely throw the fucking data and yeah. steal it yeah. out. Yeah. So, um, I suppose it's just something that's worthwhile listening yeah. to. And, and if you ever get a chance to see any of the Australian Snake Bite Project, Papers, yeah, really, really good. Highly papers. recommended Australian Australia Snake Bite Project um, papers, yeah, um, from Jeff Abista and Co. Yep. Um, all right, um, moving on. Uh, number two, we got Cipriani et al. Correlation between uh, ontogenetic dietary shift and venom variation in Australian browns. Um, that's pseudo Naha. Uh, comparative biochemistry and physiology. C. Toxicology and pharmacology. Twenty seventeen. Um, so snake venoms, as we know, pretty uh, rapidly uh, evolving uh, family of genes with uh, going through gene duplication, functional diversification into families of, uh, of uh, you know, venom genes. 
Um, in Australia, some have uh, evolved uh, the uh, prothrombin activating coagulopathic venoms. So activating the prothrombin clotting cascade in, in, uh, in, in people's blood or in mammalian blood or prey blood, whatever kind of blood. Um, this includes the hoplocephalus, so the uh, broad-headed and banded snakes, uh, Natekis, the uh, tigers, Oxyuranus, the taipans, Sudanaha, browns, and uh, Tropodecus, that's the rough scales. Um, so an ontogenetic shift is a, you know, a change throughout uh, uh, the animal's lifetime from one thing to another. So um, basically there's uh, been some evidence of this before, I think from uh, Timothy Jackson uh, and uh, down there at the Fry Lab, Jackson et al. 2016, they found that nocturnal foragers, um, things that are basically feeding on sleeping lizards at night time, uh, are lacking in procoagulant toxins. So here they're kind of looking at the functional variation in the venom uh, compared to the diet across the whole Pseudonaha genus and across some age classes. So just briefly, I, I think we've got to talk about uh, blood clotting. So um, there's a bunch of uh, clotting factors in your blood. Uh, this is just briefly for the audience. Um, imagine um, your a blood vessel. Um, on the inside, you've got your blood flowing through, and there's a bunch of... Uh, uh, coagulation factors in there uh, that we're going to number from one to seven. Number three is actually on the outside of the blood vessel. So imagine you break that blood vessel and now the blood is flowing out through and factor three, which is on the outside, comes into contact with factor seven. It causes a bit of an enzymatic change and now that complex of seven and three can turn factor five into activated factor five. Activated factor five can turn prothrombin into thrombin, um, and uh, thrombin acts to transform in your blood a product called fibrinogen, which is soluble, to fibrin, which is insoluble, then precipitates out of the blood, which in combination with platelets forms a clot. Plasmin um, is another product in the uh, which can be produced, which degrades these fibrin clots via fibrolysis, um, and there's other factors and cofactors involved. Got through that okay, I think. Um, so look, they examined venom in nine Pseudonaha and three GV offspring uh, using a fluorometric enzyme activity studies, basically looking at the uh, fluorescence difference between a substrate and a product to measure the enzyme activity. So um, just for example, you've got a tube of blood with some blood plasma and you've got a fluorescent substrate for uh, factor 5A, um, uh, in this case a, a protein called ANSN, which uh, you add some venom, if FXA is in there, um, it's going to bind to this substrate and fluoresce more, there's going to be more fluorescing um, ANSN. Um, so high fluorescence indicates high FXA activity, which itself turns prothrombin into thrombin, thrombin turns fibrinogen into fibrin, which clots with platelets. <laughs> All right. So, simple, um, so simple. From the paper, once cleared by specific factors, the fluorescence group exhibits an increase in fluorescence. Specific factors were used to investigate different factors. Specific substrates were used to investigate different factors active in the venom or activated via the venom. So factor XA, plasmin, 7A, and thrombin, um, assessing the effect of venom on different components in the coagulation cascade. And then they mapped those uh, uh, coagulation activities to a phylogenetic tree from Skinner, 2005. And uh, pretty cool, confirms the ontogenetic shift, which, you know, pretty much to be expected. Um, Non-coagulopathic juveniles turn to coagulopathic as adults in most of the Pseudonaha, except Modesta. Um, lower coagulopathic scores on its whole life, uh, being mostly a lizard eater at night time. Is that correct? Um, potentially. Potentially? <laughs> potentially. There's not a lot of agamids in their diet. Yeah, okay. So generally what you see with them is sort of eating... Uh, and sk eating stuff at night, yeah. you're tending to see agamids and skinks and stuff like that yeah. being highly present in the diet. But not um, a lot of agamids. 
Well, sleeping games. Yeah. <laughs> they're asleep. No, they're, 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 they're all asleep. They sleep on trees and shit like that. Yeah, they're all right. Danny <laughs> So, you know, you get animals that aren't necessarily going up into trees that are chasing and gamut in trees and stuff yeah. like that. Um, at the same time, though, we also don't know a hell of a lot about um, Sudanaya Modesta. Yeah. And I suppose I'm going to put a whole caveat here and say <laughs> that Shudanae Modesta, looking at the phylogeny of that, is actually more closely related to Taipans than it is to brown snakes. So you're thinking so that probably, it's going to be revised? Well, the, the name was... There was a genus name that was erected for called Notasudanae, uh, which was by Wells. <laughs> Notasudanae? Notasudanae, yeah. <laughs> Fucking original, isn't it? Uh, Wells is... so many negatives in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's a double negative. false cobra, yeah. yeah. All right, fine. Yeah, so oh, there's um, a nerd joke just, for you. Oh, it's just yeah. like no backtracking that. Let's just add them on. Yeah, well, just keep adding on to the name. Yeah, right. but I mean, it was a name by Wells, so you know that'll be accepted in time this week. <laughs> um, at the same time, I mean, there was a, a yeah, study, a no thesis jokes. study that looked at the phylogeny of Australian brown snakes, taipans, and black snakes, and now it's a published. It's a thesis, so it's not technically published. Okay, so. Um, but you're looking at that, and they suggest that there's going to be a rapid change in the what would need to be the assessment of Super brown snakes and black snakes home, and yeah. a few other bits and pieces. So, I suppose the only concern that I've got with that is that if Shudnaya Modesta isn't actually a Shudnaya, does that throw out the data? Well, on that coagulopathic mm. score, I mean, I mean, they're using Skinner et al.'s uh, phylogenetic tree. So, if that phylogenetic tree is wrong. Well, in, in Skinner's paper itself, yeah. in the conclusions of it, it does state that, quite clearly that they're not sure about Shudanea Modesta is more closely related to Taipans. So okay. if it says that in the paper, which it does, yeah. right, then should they have shifted Shudanea Modesta into Oxidorans? In a different genus. Or should they have put it, resurrected it, uh, erected a genus Not a Shudanea, yeah. Mm. yeah uh, I, I'm all for not a Shudanea. <laughs> I think it's fantastic. It's a cool that's name. So yeah. uh, Shudanea, not and a Shudanea. So there's, there's one other thing that I'm going to add to that as well, is that Modesta is actually a species complex. Yeah, that's what I thought as well. There's more than one species there in the ringed browns. Mm. Um, who's, is anybody looking at that? Not now. Not now. Hmm. Um, for me, the uh, the question was um, about geographic variation. So, like yeah. textes in um, in in uh, eastern browns uh, in Queensland are much more coagulopathic than they are in South Australia. The South Australia ones have a higher rate of uh, taking out rat neurons um, yeah. with uh, neurotoxin and their lower coagulopathic scores. So, how is that shift going to go? Um, I mean, there's geographic variation on top of the ontogenetic shift. Yeah. Um, so that how that ontogenetic shift happens and at what stage, I wonder how that varies by geographic range well, myself. The, I mean, there's rapid diversification in, yeah. in venom toxicity yeah. and that, stuff like that as well, depending on even within the same species. I mean, so you've got age shift yeah. and then you've got geographic, geographic shift, shift as well. Yeah. And yeah. then you've got uh, poorly known phylogeography of some yeah. of those things as well. So, um, And then you've you, got you, epigenetics you use, on top of that that could be doing God knows what. Well, you use, it, you use Eastern Brow Snakes as an example. Yeah. I mean, we regard the ones in Papua as, as textilists. And yet, that paper that you were talking about in the last episode yeah, yeah, um, across shows the straits, that yeah. the Papua that the Papua and brown snakes are much more closely related to the isolated population of uh, textilists that's found around Alice Springs. Right. So maybe some of these things might need to be looked at maybe as a little well. bit more intensely, um, and and go back and. and Do you think this is a species level changes or just? 
locality. I'm not a fucking geneticist. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody else. Um, okay, Yanni. Yeah. <laughs> Does the species level change, Yanni? Yes. All right. You've heard it here first. Yeah. Um, <laughs> get, don't listen to me. I've got no, no idea what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's on camera. It's on camera now. Um, I don't know. I think people are way too quick to jump on the fucking, oh, yeah, let's call it a new species. Yeah, absolutely. Well, but at the I same time, shit. too, I think at the same time, there's also a big problem where people are too resistant to change as well. Yeah. Um, I think I'm probably frogs. more on the resistant side. Not too resistant, but... I, yeah, it does frustrate me when suddenly people would say, oh, let's split this, split that, instead of just looking at the subtle differences within a species. Oh, yeah. Well, look, I think one of the issues is is that you get uh, phylogeneticists that are going through and they look at the genes, yeah. and they're looking at the genes, and then you get a zoologist that's looking at the morphology or the ecology of the species mm-hmm. or something like that. The two fuckers need to talk. Yeah. You know? Communicate. Mm-hmm. When There's... they talk and they communicate, you get like that's a beautiful paper like... Yeah. Um, Horner's Cryptoblepharus revision, yeah, which was awesome, fucking yeah. amazing, and yeah. um, well done it, morphology, well done phylogenetics, absolutely like jammed together really well. Exactly, with confusing little fucking skinks. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, at the same time, though, what comes out is there's people don't question effectively whether uh, Paul was right on. Mm. Yeah. He's gone through and he's done all the hard yards. It'd be much nicer if some of these newer papers that come out with taxonomy actually spent a bit longer and worked out. At the same time, too, we have a certain other problem with people coming in and, and using other people's data to to put slap names on things. Yeah. Um, and so there's a whole political side to taxonomy, which is really, really disappointing. So, yeah, I think might, people, might have to talk about that another time. We might yeah. be here for five hours talking oh, about yes. that stuff. <laughs> we need more people going back and refreshing data or double-checking or getting more data rather than mm. just constantly referring back to the one set that was put together yeah yeah for sure um, one of the things, uh, one of the other things that was pretty cool in this paper, um, they predicted um, that rhinovorous um, animals uh, would have the procoagulant venom, you know, um, uh, as opposed to uh, things that are eating skinks. So things that are eating frogs at night time um, are perhaps coming across them in high metabolic rate because they're, they're calling. Mm-hmm. So they're finding these mm-hmm. calling frogs, which as opposed to sleeping skinks, their metabolic rate is up. So you can hit them with the procoagulants and they will still manage to spread it around their body before it gums them up. Whereas those skinky, uh, those uh, sleeping skinks, you don't want to mess with their circulation because you've got to get that neurotoxin around to stop yeah. the heart. Yeah. Um, so they figured, you know, um, Pseudonaja guitata, um, little speckled brown, mm-hmm. um, being... Um, uh, being a rhinovore eating frogs, um, just like uh, red belly blacks, ruffies, and tigers, um, indeed um, does have those procoagulant venoms. So pretty cool. Um, just a nice little prediction that they pulled off there, I think. Yeah. At the same time, though, with Shidna Gatara, they eat a shitload of mammals too. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, so I think where, where the problem is is that if you get somebody that's collecting Shidna Gatara, when they come to the surface out on the Mitchell Grass Plains, yeah. There's lots and lots of flooding. There's yeah, lots of right. flooding. There's, frogs there's lots of fucking frogs. If yeah. there's lots of frogs, what are going to be in the guts of the guitar? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Right. So I think so perhaps rhinovore versus mice. generalist might be a or better term. Could there be a shift? Yeah, a seasonal shift potentially in the seasonal yeah. onto genetic so shifts and so tight with venom. Yeah. Ooh. I don't know. More studies, more funding. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. give these people some money. Yeah. All right. Um, look, I don't think we have time for this last paper, guys. I think we're going to have to leave it there and move on to plugs. Um, actually, we've got a little bit of time for in the news, I think. Uh, just quickly in the news. Um, 
This is from ABC News. Um, Queensland Nature Refuge celebrates birth of hair, rare hairy nosed wombat. So the first northern hairy nosed wombat joey born in five years has emerged from its mother's pouch at Richard Underwood Nature Refuge in St George. With a population of just 250, it is one of the world's rarer species. A wombat specialist team reports that the mother and joey are doing well with the baby staying close to its mother. Now these guys were rediscovered in 1930. Uh, 240 currently at Epping Forest Park and the... Um, St. George Reserve, where this uh, animal was born, is now up to 11 animals. So not the most common in the world. Um, good on them, then. Yeah. Who, who doesn't like baby wombats? Fucking love oh, that. They're so like, the coolest. That's so, wombats for so a walk cute. Is the best yeah. time. You've taken wombats for a walk? Well, when we were at Geckos, like if you didn't take them out for a show that day. Oh, uh, Gecko's Gek- wildlife uh, yeah, uh, bumpy. demonstration. Yeah, yeah Bumpy would yeah. love to go for a little walk, except he'd like nip you on the heels. Yeah. <laughs> he thinks it's like super cute, having a great time, but it hurts. So. Oh my god. Two year old male wombats fucking suck. Oh, they go a bit savage, do they? Well, they, they sort of hit puberty and then they're, they're like, <laughs> it's like, yeah, I'm just going to botch on the fucking ankles. Oh, and yeah. Yeah. I used to bite mum on the back and she's yeah. got that hard pad yeah. and she yeah, doesn't right. really feel it. You're running along. Yeah, yeah. Like your Achilles doesn't quite have yeah. that hard. Yeah, nice. All right. Well, uh, moving on. We are uh, we're running out of time. Uh, from the scientists uh, in uh, on the twentieth uh, of July, IVF to revive endangered white rhino population. So we were talking about rhinos with Lisa uh, on the last show as well. Um, using in vitro fertilization, scientists hope to revitalize populations of the endangered northern white rhino. Illegal poaching has wiped out northern white rhino populations. Uh, there there are only three left in the wild. A 40-year-old male and two younger females. So, thus fertility issues. Um, yeah. Impossible to breed naturally because of age and, and um, you know, just low uh, genetic diversity. So, look, they are planning to extract some eggs from the northern white rhinos this, later this year. Once fertilised, they hope to implant the embryos in southern white surrogates. If unsuccessful, they're going for an IVF hybrid southern north white rhino instead. Uh, Robert Hermes of the Leibniz Institute for Zoological Research in Germany told BBC our great hope is to go to Africa to collect eggs from these last two northern white females and to fertilise them so we would have a pure northern bred white rhino embryo but the last northern whites could die at any time anything could happen to them then all their genetics would be lost. If we have at least 50% of this preserved in a hybrid we will preserve at least half for future generations half of not much it's mm. um, it is something, Can you but really uh, bring back a population from like having two like the genetics. That's uh, it can be done. Yeah. I mean, look at the Przewalski horses. Yeah, there was not many of those, mm. and they brought them right back. And there doesn't seem at this stage to be any, any issues. No, you're not seeing what? a genetic bottleneck. Yeah. No, you're just not seeing it. it, it they seem to be okay. Well, I'm, okay, no. you ha- so, there has to be a genetic bottleneck because you know you've only well, got so there, much genetic, was, but yes. maybe you're not seeing a, a, a health effect yet. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. And that's, no. that's a that's a okay. really low like low population size. To, yeah. to be the like complete devil's advocate here, yeah. right? How many fucking millions of dollars are they expending on this? Yeah. So why couldn't they spend that money onto something else? Something, something else like gonna, trying to get those where uh, you might be able to save it. Yeah. Something you can actually make a very a big impact. Yeah. I think it's just that people have that emotional connection with them, especially because like the majority of the reason that they've gotten down to three is from human impacts, yep. from like poaching that sort of yeah. thing. So I guess they there is that emotive sense to it. But I do I totally understand your case. That's the first thing I thought of yeah. when I was reading this. Like if there's three left of these, like really there's really not much. They're basically biologically these, like, dead. Aren't yeah. They? Yeah, yeah, that's what I was gonna say. They're there is like a, there is a minimum number for a population extinct. size to yeah. be sustainable, yeah. and uh, I mean. You can I mean, try, but you're only going to get so far. This is where social aspect comes into the yeah, scientific aspect. Yeah. Right. Who's going to give out? Often 
what people want yeah, is going to outweigh what is, what is scientifically scientific, liter- yeah, like, you know. All right, guys, I think we're going to have to move on. Guys, again, nature for you. Look at this shirt, man. It's beautiful. Um, they got these beautiful mugs there as well. I got my nice Wellsy eye there. That is a Wellsy eye, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is a Wellsy eye. Um, I don't like morning people or mornings or people. <laughs> See that? You can get these. You can get the shirts. Now, we're also going to be auctioning off uh, one of these to whoever has the uh, funniest comment on our video so like us follow us check us out on facebook instagram nature for you as well um your guys are on facebook instagram yes, where else can we see you guys oh we pop up everywhere all sorts of places so guys um dude thank you so much for joining i hope you enjoyed the cake Love um it. Dude, it's been great meeting you. My, my biggest thing that I'm happy about is the fact that you like old school gangster rap. <laughs> that makes me really happy. So to all the herpers out there, go throw on some Nas and some Tribe Core Quest. Go clean your snake cages while listening to rap. It's, it, it's good for you. It's Illmatic. healthy. Good album. Illmatic. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Illmatic and, uh, and reptile shit. That's what we're all about. No worries. All right. Um, and it, dude, always welcome back. Painish, Aaliyah, Scott, it's been a pleasure. Um, guys, that's it. We'll uh, see you next time. Hopefully, um, we'll be talking with uh, the platypus, platypus, platypus Conservation Initiative. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Hopefully, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thanks again, guys. Uh, we'll see you next time. Cheers. Woo!